so this weekend, um, I intend to share with you a series of messages uh, that I have given the, the theme, Life with the Spirit. Life with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is actually a very personal interest of mine in studying and and constantly preaching because he recognized that in most places it is not preached. It is not talked about. It is not prayed for. It is not taught. It is not even understood. And so as a result, I wanted to take an opportunity to use different passages in the Bible that may be familiar to you and some may be unfamiliar to you in order to shed some light on this third person of the Godhead. This person that is oftentimes neglected and yet is all essential and is oftentimes described as a gift. Can you imagine to have a gift such as the Holy Spirit and not know how to get that gift, not know how to receive that gift and how to apply that gift and to make it relevant to your life? And so this weekend, I'd like to explore that topic in very specific contexts with you. Uh, and I pray and trust that God will be with us as we speak of this topic because before the Lord died, this was the topic that was on his heart with his disciples. This is what he was most interested that they would understand, that they would receive and that they would take the heart, this study of the Holy Spirit. And so I trust that the Lord will be with us and he will guide us and as he promised in John 16 verse 13 that his spirit would actually guide us into all truth. And he would show us things to come. So bow your heads with me as we pray and we'll get started. Uh, before it gets too late, Heavenly Father, um, we are so grateful for the gift of life. We are grateful, Father, for your protection this week, safely through. We have made it. We know that it is because of your grace and because of your mercies. Now, Father, as we are here tonight to study your word, we ask that you would not lead us to hear the words of a man but that we would hear the words of God. Lord, we have not come to hear the opinions and theories and pontifications of the human mind, but we've come to drink deeply of the well of the waters of life. Father, we want to hear your word. We want to hear your voice speaking to our hearts. Revive us again and guide us through this all-important theme of your spirit is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. If you can take your Bibles with me and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is in the New Testament. You have Acts, and then after Acts you have Romans, and after Romans you have the book 1 Corinthians. And we're going to begin in chapter 1. And I want to give a little bit of an introduction. So, 1 Corinthians, in the New Testament, the church in Corinth is a very critical church. Corinth was a very central place to the Roman and Greek economy at that time. There was immense amounts of diversity in culture and money and development and technology and advancements going on in Corinth. This is where the Olympic Games were actually originated, was in Corinth. Paul will use that as an illustration later on in the book. But I want you to notice, as the book starts out, Paul writes these words, beginning in verse 4. Paul says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were encircled, enriched, I'm sorry, in everything by him, in all utterance and in all knowledge, 
So I want you to notice that Paul first, first decides to bring to light the fact that this church, he says, you were enriched in how many things? What does your Bible say? Everything. It says everything. And the Bible does not exaggerate. So the Apostle Paul says that this church was enriched in everything by Jesus, in all utterance, that means speaking, and all knowledge. Verse 6, he goes on to say, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. In other words, they also had a prophet. The spirit of prophecy was manifested within the Corinthian church. Verse 7 is really where I want to land. He says, so that you come short in how many gifts? No gifts. Eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the Bible says that this church is a gifted church. In fact, this church, Paul says in verse 7, has not come short in any gift from God. Whatever God has made available, the church in Corinth availed itself to receive this gift. And he says this church is a gifted church. And you find that maybe perhaps you can resonate with the experience of the Corinthian church. Because within a church that has diverse gifts, within a church that is diversified not just among its talents, but also among its education, among its experience, among its culture, among the ages, among sense of technology and advancements, abilities, Paul recognizes that this church does not come short. But yet, the Corinthian church, being a gifted church, was also a very problematic church. With all the gifts that it had, it had a lot of issues. And it is still rings true from the very beginning of time that the most gifted tend to have the most problems. You start with Lucifer all the way back in heaven. The most gifted angel was the one that had the most problems. Then you come down to the earth and you recognize among all the creatures that God had made, the one that was most gifted was the one that had the most problems. Then after man fell into sin, you track down the ages of all the leaders and the primogeniture, the, the passing down of the gift of the Messiah, and there was Judah among the most gifted had the most problems. Jacob, the most gifted, had the most problems. Abraham, the most gifted, had the most problems. Then you even come down to the days of the disciples. And among them, Judas, the most gifted, had the most problems. Peter, the most gifted, had the most problems. And now we come to the Corinthian church and find this principle constantly ringing true. If we sit down and look even among our children, among our youth, among our jobs, among our academic institutions, it seems to be the case that the one with the most gifts tends to have the most problems. That just seems to be the case. We look at individuals and say, why is it that the child with the most potential has the most behavioral problems? Why is it that the child that is the brightest in the class is the one that struggles to focus? Why is it that the one, if they applied themselves, would go the farthest is the one that lacks discipline, self-control, an understanding and respect for authority? It is not happenstance. This is something that has plagued the universe and which is why the Lord Jesus himself died. Because the most gifted being 
in the universe created the most amazing problem ever laid upon the table of the divine that cost him his only son to correct because the most gifted had the most problems. And so the Corinthian church continues in this trend. And eventually Paul comes back to deal with these particular gifts. Go to chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 Beginning in verse 1, Paul is a very methodical and logical thinker when it comes to his writings. The Bible says in verse 1, are you there? Can you say amen? amen? He says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. And no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, you may notice in your Bible in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 1 that the word gifts is in italics. Do you notice that in your Bible? That means that it is not there in the original language. It is not in the Greek. The word is supplied by the translators. And in other words, the word there is really just spiritual or spirituality. The concept of the manifestation of the Spirit. They supplied the word gifts because clearly, as we go through the chapter, his focus is on spiritual gifts. But the word is actually not there. This is why he goes in verse 3 and says, you know that no person speaking by the Holy Spirit will call Jesus a curse. In other words, Paul sums it up very succinctly by saying, how do you know that a person has the Holy Spirit? What is their relationship to Jesus? That is the very simple answer to the question. When we talk about preaching the Spirit, teaching the Spirit, encouraging the reception of the Spirit, it is not how we relate to the Spirit that is the question. It is how we relate to Christ. If you have the Holy Spirit, then you relate to Jesus as Lord. That is the indication. Bottom line, it is not an issue of giftedness. It is an issue of obedience. It is an issue of surrender. It is an issue of transformation. That's how we know that a person has the Spirit. But then Paul says, even though I summarize this, I'm going to give you a play-by-play, piece-by-piece, step-by-step explanation as to why what you're talking about is absurd. And the question is, what were they talking about? Now, we said in chapter 1 and verse 7 that this church came short in no gift. And among the gifts that the Corinthian church had was the gift of tongues. And apparently within this church, there was the mindset that the gift of tongues was the greatest manifestation of the Holy Spirit. In other words, how did you know and how did we know that you have the Holy Spirit? It is because you had the Spirit, because you speak in tongues. So as a result of this, within the Corinthian church, there emerged this idea that, oh, you don't speak with tongues, you don't have the Spirit. But you may prophesy. But you may heal, but you may have the gifts of miracles, but you may be able to manifest amazing and great supernatural faith. But no, you don't speak in tongues, you don't have the spirit. So now Paul says, let me break down why your point in this issue is ridiculous. And he takes three chapters to do it. We're only going to deal with two of those this weekend. And so here in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul begins his argument in verse 4 of addressing this issue. And you would be surprised to know 
that this issue in Corinthians is not a new issue, right? Do we not find the issue of the gift of tongues today in Christianity? It continues to persist. And there are still churches and multiple denominations, at least 40 that I know for sure, that suggest that how do you know that your church has the Holy Spirit? Do you speak in tongues? Has anyone heard that before? So you find that in our generation, right now among Christianity, people will say, oh, you come to your church, you hear this song singing, they say they don't have the spirit. How do you know? They're not speaking in tongues. So this is not God's church. This is not the Christianity of old. Because what we may not understand is that while they continue to espouse the idea that the gift of tongues is the primary manifestation or the evidence that you have the Holy Spirit, you must also recognize that the reason why this whole idea was created in the 1800s, in fact, right around 1844, this idea of speaking in an unintelligible language as a manifestation of the Spirit of God, this came in response to the spiritual let lethargy within the church. People got tired of hearing hymns being sung like it was a funeral, Sabbath after Sabbath. People got tired of the fact that the sermon had no power behind it. People got tired of coming to Sunday school or to Sabbath school and recognizing there is no meat in this class. They got tired of the fact that when it was time to do evangelism and outreach, everybody decided to go home. Nobody wanted to go forward to serve the Lord, but we're, we're so ready for Jesus to come, but we don't want to do what needs to be done before he comes. So as a result of being tired and tired and tired and tired, they said, you know what? We are not doing what the original church did. How do we get back to the birth of the church, to the launch of the church at Pentecost? That was the question. So when they went back to Pentecost, guess what you find there at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2? You find that when the disciples received the Holy Spirit, they started doing what? Speaking in tongues. So now as they, as they took this, this was combined with the whole concept of spiritualism. What word did I say? Spiritualism. There's a whole mode of religion out there in the world right now that we call spiritualism. And spiritualism is essentially everything that we believe in the heavenly realm of Christianity without God. That's essentially what spiritualism is. Everything we believe in the spiritual realm, just take out God out of the picture. You have spiritualism. So they'll say, oh, you know, there's angels, right? We call them angels. They believe in angels. They even worship them. That's kind of not surprising considering the person behind all these things was a former angel in heaven. So he's got no problem with you worshiping angels. Then they worship trees. They worship statues and they worship people and they worship all these things. But one of the commonalities among spiritualism is this idea of what we call mysticism. Can you say that word? Mysticism. Mysticism is the idea of how do you draw close to God? That is the question of all spirituality. How do I know that I'm drawing near to God? How can I know that I'm close to God? And mysticism says you must have some sort of emotional, mystical experience. Something you cannot explain with your reason. So they say religion is not logical, it's not intellectual, it's more emotional, it's more experiential, it's what you feel. So mystics would do things like 
turn in circles for like hours and hours and hours, right? And while you're di that dizziness, you begin to have an experience with God. That's mysticism. And this is obviously combined with spiritualism. Because if you notice, in a lot of spiritualistic religions, they do a lot of chanting. They do a lot of repetition. They do a lot of actions over and over. The music is very repetitive to create a sense of trance, to create a sense of being mesmerized, to constantly get you doing the same thing over and over again and over and over again. And before you know it, you start having an experience. And that experience is the basis of your spirituality. This is how you know that you're drawing closer and closer and closer to the divine. So this idea was combined and served as almost like the gift of tongues was a Trojan horse in order to bring this concept inside the church. It first gained entrance into the church through the Jesuit order, the Society of Jesus in the Catholic Church, and through Ignatius Loyola. And Ignatius was a mystic, and Ignatius said, well, this is what we have to do to draw closer, not to the spirits or to the divine, but to Jesus. And so now we put a Christian label on it, we put a Christian garment on it, and there you have it. It is now within Christianity. And one of the manifestations of having this mystical encounter with Jesus was sometimes speaking in an unintelligible language. They called it glossolalia. It comes from two Greek words, lalia, which basically means to speak, and glossa means tongue. So now, if you get more sophisticated in some churches, they say, no, no, this is a heavenly language. It's called glossolalia, whatever. Um, but I'm not going to get into that necessarily today. I bring all this up to simply build the case that you have to almost admire their sincerity in going back to Pentecost. And people recognizing they're not going to play games with the church and pretend and play church. They're not just going to go through the motions. If I'm going to be a Christian, these people are saying, I want the authentic Christianity that was launched by Peter and Paul and James and John. That's the Christianity I want today. And therefore, they believe that the gift of tongues will provide that. Unfortunately, it is slightly misguided, as the Apostle Paul will explain to us. So you're there with me in verse 4. We're going to read down to verse 7. The Bible says, there are diversities... Of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. Now I want you to track with me here for a second. This is what we call unity in diversity. Can you say that phrase with me? Unity in diversity. Did you know that's where we get the word university from? Yes, that is exactly where it comes from. Unity in diversity is the reason why philosophy exists. It was created to find the answer to the question, how do you find unity amidst diversity? In other words, how do you bring a commonality among everything that is not like anything else? So as a result, this, this idea of the university, which is why you choose a major of study, and your major is the thing that brings unity amidst all your diversity of classes. It's a Greek concept. So now you say, well, why do you need to take English? Why do you need to take math? Well, if you're a 
English major, you're someone who's studying English or law, well, the reason why you study math is because as a lawyer, you may need to understand math to calculate how your clients are going to pay you. You may also need to understand certain things about laboratory and exhibits and evidence. But if you're a person who's in English, why do you need to know math? Because we have things in poetry called iambic pentameter, which is a certain number of counts per line. Well, if you don't know math, you're not going to be able to produce certain kinds of poetry. But why is it that a mathematician needs English? How is he going to be able to explain his mathematical theorem except in words? And if he can't make his subject and verb agree, we're going to have a problem. Can you say amen? amen. So as a result, we, we grapple with the fact that in the college, in the university, this is the idea that is behind the university, is whatever subject you and I choose to study, this is what brings unity amidst the diversity. This is the thing. So we call it a university. And... To this day, we still don't understand why it's called that. And we don't understand the Greek implications of that. But again, for another time. For the sake of our passage, Paul says in verse 4, there are diversities of what? Gifts. But what? The same spirit. Now, the title of my sermon is The Same Spirit. Now, Paul says, when you look at all the gifts in the church... There is a what? What does your Bible say about the gifts? There's diversities of them, right? So when you look at all the gifts in the church, Paul says there's diversities of gifts. But even though there is a diversity of gifts, there is not a diversity of the Spirit. Are you following? So as a result, there's this concept that for you to take the gift of tongues and say, oh, this person has more of the Spirit, or they have a better quality of the Spirit, or more quantity of the Spirit, or they have the authentic Spirit, Paul says, that's crazy because there's diversities of gifts, but it is the same Spirit. So in this day, the question is, are there gifts that we exalt among others in the church, within Christianity? It is unfortunate that to this day, we continue to take certain gifts and say that person has more of the spirit than this person. So as a result, we can just start with a very easy one, the preacher. So someone can come to the congregation and God uses this person to preach the word of God, to inspire us and to move us. Our conclusion is this person has more of the spirit than me. But you would be wrong because there are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. Then you go to potluck. And you say, man, this sister really hooked up the food for church. Now after church, we're all enjoying this great, healthful, wonderful meal, diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. There is no difference between the spirit of the woman cooking the food and the brother who preached the word earlier that day. There is no difference between the spirit of the person that goes forward and says, my gift is in evangelism, your gift is in pastoring. It's the same spirit. Paul says, I'm going to deal with this from the very word go. And as a result, you have a congregation that has now pervaded the entire world of Christendom. That to this day, we continue to believe this. That because he's the pastor, he has more of the spirit than me. Because my gift is not pastoring, because my gift is not preaching, because my gift is not outreach or whatever we want to call it, we say, well, 
that person has more of the spirit than me. You'd be wrong. You're not just wrong. You're dead wrong. And Paul says there are diversities of gifts. But how many spirits? One. It is the same one. You need just as much of the Holy Spirit to cook that potluck as the brother needs to preach a sermon. You need just as much of the Spirit to go to the hospital and provide words of encouragement as the brother who teaches Sabbath school. It is the same Spirit. And because we don't believe this, we like to take back seat roles in the church. We say there's nothing for me to do here. We're standing idle in the marketplace because in our minds it's a different spirit. Oh, when that sister gets up to sing, different spirit. When this person decides, you know what, he's a really great elder, really good at chairing meetings, really good at administration, that's a different spirit. No, the Bible says same spirit. So for you and I to now look down upon ourselves and say, oh yeah, that person has this gift, this person has that gift, he says no. And notice the next verse says, there are differences of what? Ministries, but the same Lord. And there are differences of what? Activities, but the same God. So just because the brothers out there say, well, we're the ones organizing the cradle roll Sabbath school, different activity, but it's the same God. Different gift, but it's the same spirit. Different ministry, but it's the same Lord. Are you following this? Paul says, I'm going to address this from the very beginning. Just because a person does not have the gift of tongues does not mean they don't have the spirit. And not only does it mean they don't have the spirit, it doesn't mean they have less. It doesn't mean they have a different amount. It doesn't mean they have a different quality. It is the same spirit in every way. So now you and I have to sit down and reflect right now and ask ourselves this question. What are the gifts and the talents that God has given to you and to me? And as we ask that question and answer that question, honestly, we say these are the gifts, these are the interests, these are the passions, these are the abilities and talents that God has given to me. While the question that you have to follow up that is, do you believe that it takes less of the spirit to do what you do than for the preacher? Because we've gotten to a point where we made celebrities of preachers. There's nothing that irks me more. When I went to Ethiopia the first time and the second time, I'm sitting there talking to these people after preaching, and as a result, I decided to preach this sermon there because I said, you know, these people don't fully understand. So the guy comes up to me with a piece of paper. Thank you, sister. And he has a list of his entire family. First cousin, second cousin, third cousin, once removed, fourth cousin, twice removed. He had all his whole family. The whole piece of paper was filled. Top to bottom, front and back, two pages. He says, Pastor, I want you to pray for all my family. Please pray for them. I know God will hear your prayers. I said, I know God will hear yours. You can have it back. No, no, no. You don't understand, Pastor. You don't understand. I mean, you're a man of God. Are you not? No, no, I'm not a preacher. That doesn't mean anything. I says, my Bible says that we can come boldly. It didn't say the preacher can come boldly. You better come quietly. 
Amen? Amen? That's not what the Bible says. It didn't say, oh, you're Sebastian Braxton. Yeah, you can come in. Oh, uh, the God will see you. Oh, wait, who are you? Uh, Tiffany, no, no, the Lord will not see you. You're not on his list today. You're not in his good graces. No, that's righteousness by works. There is no person going into the throne room of God on his own merits. He is going in there because of the merits of Jesus' blood. Because of the merits of Jesus' name. And Paul says, this is evidenced by the Holy Spirit. So for someone to think, because I am a preacher, God will hear my prayers more than theirs, that's not biblical, that's Catholic. That's what Catholics believe. I can't go to God, I better pray to Peter, and Peter will interpret my prayer, and God will hear Peter's prayer, and he will hear me. Now, I'm not saying this because I read it in a book. I'm saying it because I have Catholic friends that do that. And when I pressure them on this, I'm like, doesn't that seem a little odd to you? You have to pray to Peter? Where in the Bible do you see Jesus teaching that? You don't. So where did it come from? And the girl's looking at me like, I'm like, listen, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to blast Catholicism or Catholics. But I'm just saying the ideas definitely are not biblical. Because it goes directly against Paul's counsel, it is the same spirit. If you have the same Holy Spirit as the preacher, what is preventing you from going all the way with your talents? Why are you and I holding back from the church? Why are you and I holding back from God if it is the same spirit? That is behind every gift. Can you imagine that the moon decides I'm not the sun, so I'm not going to shine? Can you imagine that the river, Thames, says, well, you know, I'm not the Atlantic Ocean, so I'm not going to flow. Or the rose says, I'm not the great redwood tree, so I'm not going to grow. Because unless you're the redwood, then you're really not a plant. Unless you're the ocean, you're really not a body of water. Can you imagine this? Grass decides, you know what? We're not flowers, so we're not going to grow. But you know this is exactly what happens in the church. I'm not the pastor, so I'm not getting involved. I'm not the preacher, so I'm not getting involved. And Paul is saying it is the same exact spirit. But just to build his case, I want you to notice as he goes in verse 8, he continues to build off this argument. He says, for to one is given the word of what? Wisdom. I want you to track these gifts. For to one. How many? One. Is given what? Wisdom. Notice as the Bible goes on. And how is he given wisdom in verse 8? Through the Spirit. To another, the word of knowledge through the same Spirit. To another, faith by the? Same spirit. To another, gifts of healings by the same spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. To another, different kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. But one and the what? Same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. We don't get the gifts because we chose them. We got the gifts because the Spirit gave them to us. He chose which gifts that you got. 
not you. This is not train so hard and then you'll be a great preacher. Some people are not called to preach. The Spirit didn't give you that gift, but people want the notoriety. They want the popularity. They want the love. They want the adoration. They want people speaking their name. They want somebody to stand up front and say, my favorite preacher is such and such. And because we want that, that's why we're striving and we're reading books on preaching. I never read one book on preaching. All I did was I said, well, <coughs> this is what the Bible says. Tell them what it says. That simple. Preaching is no more complicated than that. But when people try to add all this hooping and hollering, dancing, running up and down the stage, all kinds of heart-stringing stories, make you tear up in your eyes like, man, this is so emotional. Then you go home and someone says, what was the sermon about? You can't remember anything. Because it was about nothing. It was about an experience. It was about creating a feeling in the congregation rather than instructing people in the word of God, which is able to make them wise unto salvation. Paul says, all scripture, not your stories, not chicken soup for the soul, not your philosophical pontifications or thoughts, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. If it ain't scripture, it ain't profitable. It may be helpful, it may be useful, it may be inspiring, but it ain't profitable. Because if it doesn't agree with the word of God, if it doesn't agree with scripture, then it ain't useful to you. All of these things, profitable for reproof, for instruction, in righteousness, for rebuke, that the man of God may be truly furnished unto every good work. That's what the scripture is for. But we come, and our concern, as Paul goes on to sit here and tell us, he gave the gifts according to his will. And as a result of the spirit giving this, he, he continually, repetitively drills it into our brains. To one is given the word of wisdom through the spirit. To another, the gift of faith through the same spirit. If that's clear, let's say amen. amen. Now, here becomes the more personal question now. If it is the same spirit that gives all the particular gifts... To every single one as the Spirit chooses to give the gifts. If it's all the same Spirit, then let me ask you a question. What is it that an individual and the Holy Spirit cannot do together? Is there anything that they cannot do? You sure? Now, obviously, they can't lie, right? If you're with the Spirit, you can't sin. You can't disobey God. We understand those things. So barring irrational statements, because you always get some philosopher out there, you could do this with the Spirit. Okay, all right, fine. We'll concede these things. People can rebel against the Spirit, but we're talking about in harmony with the Spirit. So if you have this gift and it was given to you by the Holy Spirit, what is it that you and the Holy Spirit cannot do? So if there's nothing you can't do, how much are you doing? How much are we doing? We just said with the Spirit who gave us the gift, there's nothing we can't do. 
So can you imagine a man has the gift of preaching and he's not preaching? And the Spirit gave him the gift. Now, the only problem with my illustration is it doesn't work that way. He only gives the gift to people who are working. So until you do something, he won't give you any gifts. He ain't going to give you a gift. This is not superheroes. This is not Marvel comic books. You're not going to be sitting at home and all of a sudden the spirit comes down upon you. You start levitating in your bedroom. Then he shows you on the wall, this is your gift. Your gift is faith. Just go out and believe. No, this is not a chemical accident. You fell into some radioactive material and all of a sudden you have the gift of faith. This is about the very fact that when you start serving Jesus, then the Spirit gives you the gifts. Let's not forget to take notice, Jesus did not work one miracle until he received the Spirit. Not one. He didn't heal anybody. He didn't multiply any fishes or loaves. He didn't walk on water. It was after he received the Spirit. And he didn't come from the wilderness healing people. Oh, there's Jesus coming back from the 40 days of temptation. Oh, be healed. That's not how it worked. When Jesus was going out doing good, when he was preaching, teaching, and healing in every city and village, then the Spirit gave him the gift of healing. Because he was trying to bless men and he was trying to honor God. So why is it that we don't see the manifestations of these gifts? Because we are not acting. Because we are idle. Because we're waiting on some divine vision or something to put a burner under our seat to get us going. But it will never come. It's always true. The old saying, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. But in the words of Ellen White, many, she doesn't say few, she says many, will be lost hoping and desiring to be Christians. Can you imagine? People are going to go to hell and they're going to tell God, you know, I always wanted to give my life to you. Then why are you in hell? Because you never chose to give your life. You were hoping, you were desiring you were thinking, man, it's a really good idea. Those Christians seem really happy. People who give their lives fully over to Jesus, they live amazing, adventurous lives. The stories that they, that they tell in Sabbath school mission spotlight, we're like, man, I want those experiences, but we won't do what it takes. So her statement finishes, they will be lost, hoping and desiring to be Christians. Why? Because they never choose to be Christians. If you and I want to experience the gifts that the Spirit will give, we have to decide to start acting. We need to get out into service. But if we're thinking that our religion is the sum of coming here on Wednesday night and on Sabbath, and assuming most of us don't even do that, we cannot expect the Spirit to be manifested in our lives through gifts and the recognition that it is the same Spirit. No different. So are you standing idle in the marketplace? 
is Jesus asking us tonight, why are you standing here idle, doing nothing? Are we seriously contented with our Christian walk? Or do we think that the faith and the personal experience we have with Jesus will carry us through the last days, as it is today? Let's not forget, when Daniel was put in the lion's den, the Bible says he prayed as he did aforetime. He didn't increase his prayer life. His prayer life was at where it needed to be. In the words of Dwight Moody, he was all prayed up. He didn't need to increase his prayer time because, oh, Daniel, you're going to die. You might get put in a lion's den. The Bible says he just bowed his knees and prayed as he always did. But you know what happens to us? We get into a problem, we increase prayer time. Why? Because we knew we weren't praying the way we should have been praying. And you wonder why trials keep coming? So you will pray the way you ought to pray. That's why God lets problems come. But we're like, Lord, I'm trying to do your will. I'm trying to, why are you letting all these issues come? So you will get on your knees and recognize you can do nothing without me. Till we come down to Jesus and say, I cast myself helplessly upon him. Until we are broken, God cannot use us. We're clinging to our pride. We're clinging to our reputations. We're clinging to our friendships that aren't taking us anywhere. I would rather be saved on the streets of gold alone than burning in a group. But at least I got my boys with me while we're all burning in hell. Nobody is your boy in the lake of fire. They're all thinking the same thing. I should have been on the inside of the city. And woe be unto you when you're the person who was the Adventist, who was the Christian, and you never told them. And they find out. They say, you knew? And all of us are here burning together because you never told us because you're too young. Because you didn't know much. Because you're not a preacher. But it's the same spirit. You have no excuse. I'm just an artist. I'm just a writer, same spirit. Are we idle? Is the fundamental question. We will see the manifestation of amazing gifts in this church if we will rise up. And we will step up. Because I'm going to tell you the truth. As I travel and as I meet men and women and churches and families from all different cultures, from all different continents, it is the same plague everywhere. People do not want to step up. I've told people, we live in a generation right now, we don't understand the word duty. We don't understand that word. I said, you know, I have to be thankful for my upbringing, even though I was not Christian, I wasn't raised to be Christian, and for my military experience. Because serving in the Marines, it taught me something very clearly. There are some things you do because you have to do it. No other reason. You pay your taxes because you have to do it. I don't need any other reason. It's my duty to pay my taxes. That's my responsibility. I have to do it. So I can either make it a sad experience or I can make it a glad experience. That's up to me and my attitude. But whether I do it or not is not a question. 
My dad sat me down when I was 17. And he looked at me and he said, Sebastian, what is the difference between a boy and a man? I said, one year. When I turn 18, I'm a man. My dad didn't think it was funny. He looked at me and he said, no, you're wrong. He says, the difference between a boy and a man is you don't have to tell a man to take out the trash. He takes it out because it needs to be done. And he says, as long as your mom, your sister, your girlfriend, or your wife has to tell you what you know needs to be done, you're still a boy. Therefore, you'll be 54 years old, you're a boy. 34, a boy. But he says, you will know you are a man when you do what has to be done because it needs to be done. No other reason. I don't need you to tell me. So when we look at the Christian church and you look at the fact that we don't like those kind of sermons. And I say, listen, I'm all about the love of God. If anything, the love of God is the greatest reason to do what needs to be done. I love because he first loved me. But the problem is love does not remove us from duty. If you love, it makes duty more pleasant. It would be worse if I didn't love my wife. Then I would hate to have to go to work, pay the bills, give all my money to support this, give all my time, change these nasty, dirty diapers. If I didn't love my kids, I'm like, man, why am I doing this? And how many men think that? And leave because they can't handle duty, because they're still boys, but they're having babies. And then we bring people into the church, boys. I see it all over the world, church. Too many of us are not men, we are not women. We are boys and girls, waiting for someone else to tell us what we know needs to be done. You don't have to go across the street to know the gospel needs to be preached in this neighborhood. You can walk outside on any given day and see people who are living broken down lives. Broken marriages, broken homes, broken hearts. And we know what needs to be done. But we're not doing it. Who are we waiting on to tell us? Are you waiting on your neighbor to read in the newspaper she jumped out the window and committed suicide? Now we're reflecting and thinking, man, you know, I had opportunities to witness to her. How many people got to commit suicide before we start realizing I should be doing this all the time? And the only reason why I'm passionate about it is I wasn't raised in the church. So thinking to myself, if the girl who shared with me in college did not do what she was supposed to be doing, I wouldn't be here. Probably be in prison. The way my life was going. And thinking how many more Sebastians are out there in the world waiting for someone to tell them the truth. But we're standing idle because we're thinking I don't have what the preacher has. I don't have what Mark Finley has. I don't have what Doug Batchelor has. You have the same spirit. Brothers and sisters, it is time for us to wake up to our heritage. The very fact that we can even call ourselves Christians is a travesty. Recognizing that there was a time where being a Christian 
could have got you killed. You don't see any of us flocking over to the Middle East to sit here and combat ISIS and help refugees because we might get killed. That already tells us how many of us would actually be Christians if this was the days of Rome. Why would you choose to follow that religion? Keep it to yourself. You can practice in your room in private. Oh, and don't let technology come in. Didn't you have internet Christians? Worship online through false IDs and different IP addresses. Cowards. And a Christian was never a coward. They were anything but a coward. And yet we can come today and go around telling people, I'm a Christian. You know, one of my favorite stories about this, to recognize, do we really have the same spirit? This young girl in Rome, her name was Perpetua. And Perpetua was 19 years old as a convert. She had just had a son. He was about two, three months old when she got arrested by Roman authorities. They brought her in to prison before they brought her before the emperor. Her biological father came into the prison cell and said, Perpetua, look at your son. If you stay here in prison, you can't even breastfeed your son. He will die. Just tell them you're not a Christian. She said, Dad, do you see this? What is this? He said, it's a vase. She says, exactly. Can it be anything else than what it is? He said, no. She says, then I can be nothing else than what I am. And she said in Latin, Christianos, which means I am a Christian. I can be nothing else than what I am. So he left the cell. Perpetua was brought into the Colosseum. As they stood there before the emperor, her and six other Christians. They said, will you deny Jesus and pledge your allegiance to the emperor Caesar to forever worship him as king of the world? Lord, I mean, these dudes were so pompous. She said, Christianos, I am a Christian. Christianos, I am a Christian. So they said, okay. You've chosen your fate. Her father burst in with the child, weeping and pleading that the emperor would have mercy on her. The centurion was so annoyed, he had the, the guards beat the man into silence. As she went back out to the Colosseum, they released a jaguar, two lions that they clearly had been starving, wild dogs. Perpetuum them didn't even fight. When one of the Christians got tossed in the air and blood was soiling their garments, Perpetua went over to help them. And all the people are thinking they're going to watch this great fight, right? So they started booing because they realized this is not entertainment. These people aren't even resisting. It's like they're walking into the animal. They want to die for Christ. So they lined them up to have them executed by beheading. When they came to Perpetua, she didn't even blink. She laid on the table. She didn't fight them. As they were strapping her down and then they went to bring the sword, the first executioner, as he was looking into her eyes, she didn't even look like she was scared. 
So the man's hand started shaking with the sword until she reached up her hand and steadied his arm and brought it to her neck. That was a Christian. That was a Christian. A person who was not afraid of death because they knew that they were worshiping him who had conquered it. How can you be afraid of a defeated enemy? But too many of us in this room are afraid to die. But even if we go forward to Adventists, and you talk about the same spirit. I remember reading about James White, and James White was 22 years old, walked miles in the snow to preach to people on his own budget converted hundreds of people in one series of messages. Walking miles in the snow by yourself. One set of clothes. He didn't have luggage. There was no bus, no train. Then you have Joseph Bates, sold everything in 1844. Now this guy comes into the Sabbath truth and he's writing this tract. And his wife is like, Joseph, we have no food. God will provide. Joseph, you should go get a job. You should look for somewhere to get work, to get money. God will provide. Don't worry. Keeps writing his Sabbath track. <laughs> then his wife came in. She said, Joseph, she's crying. We're going to starve. We have nothing. I just cut the last potato. He looked up, put his pen down, put his coat on, and went to the post office goes to the post office. He said, excuse me, is there a letter here for me? They said, actually, a letter just came in for you. Took it, $5, which was the equivalent of two months of money. Came home, bought the biggest sack of potatoes they ever bought in their entire marriage. Set them down in the kitchen and went back to his desk and kept writing his Sabbath track. And his wife came in and she fell down at the feet of her husband weeping and said, I apologize for my lack of faith. That was a seven-day Adventist man. That's the heritage that we actually have the honor to call ourselves seven-day Adventists. And this man was not humbling his wife by dominance, by raising his hand, by yelling, or by cursing her, or calling her out of her name, or embarrassing her in front of his kids. He just went to the store and said, I know God will provide. And when the Lord did, he says, that's God's business. My business is to do what he told me to do. God will work with my wife. And he did. But you come to today, you don't have many men that wives can respect on that level. And can look at her husband and say, I know this man has more faith than me. Without question. Who would not? want to be honored to be married to a man like that. There's no question of submitting in the home and all this stuff. Because the man is what he's supposed to be. Doing what he's supposed to do. Not because his wife told him. But because the Bible told him. Is it the same spirit that's here? Do we have the same spirit? 
I can tell you right now that this spirit is very much alive. I can take you to a lot of places in the world. I can take you to Zambia. Young people decided in our gap year, we're just going to dedicate ourselves to missions. Here they are, they decided we're going to reach every unentered part of our country. Within one year, these young people baptized 3,000 souls. No training. Never been to a missionary training school, never went to seminary. I met one of the leaders. She was 18. Already preaching her first evangelistic series. Baptized 30. Here's a young girl who just says, I want Jesus to use me whatever he can use me to do. 3,000 the first year. The second year, they converted an entire Sunday-keeping church to the Sabbath. 500-member congregation, including the pastor and his wife. After three years, there was not one place in the entire country of Zambia that was not entered. Three years. That's the same spirit. If I take you to Germany, 14-year-old girl decided to go out. I did one day of training. We were running an evangelistic campaign. She went out. All of a sudden, she met this grown woman more than twice her age. And as she's talking to this woman, she said, listen, you need Bible studies. And she says, and the woman said, well, I don't even know anyone who believes in God in Germany. So she says, that's no problem. I can give you Bible studies. She says, you can give me Bible. She says, yes, I can give you Bible. This girl never gave a Bible study in her life. 14 years old. By the end of the week, she already had two Bible studies with this woman. Calling her up, encouraging her in God. 14 years old, encouraging a 40-something-year-old woman. It's the same spirit. But then, I could go on and on. The spirit is alive. The question is, can he work here in this church? Can he work in you is the question. Whatever your gifts, whatever the talents the Lord has given to you, it's the same spirit as the most inspirational Christian you've ever met. As the one you love and you respect, as the one that moves you, it is the same spirit. Throughout the ages, if we would only stop being idle in the marketplace. Every head is bowed, every eye is closed. Every head is bowed and every eye is closed. I want to make an invitation tonight for someone that says, you know what? I have been idle. But tonight, I don't want to be idle any longer. I want to make myself available to Jesus to use, like that 14-year-old girl in Germany, like those young people in Zambia, like youth all over the world like adults all over the world, parents, mothers, fathers. You say, you know what? 
No longer am I going to be a boy or a girl. I'm going to be a woman and a man, and I'm going to do what needs to be done because it needs to be done. Is there anyone that wants to take that step and say, I'm not going to be a coward. I'm not going to be afraid. I'm going to step up and do what needs to be done because it needs to be done. If there's anyone that wants to enter that appeal, I just want to invite you to stand to your feet. You say, I'm going to step up and do what needs to be done because it needs to be done. I'm not waiting on anyone else. Every head is bowed, every eye is closed. This is between you and God. If you're not standing, you should be praying and asking the person who needs to stand to stand. You say, I'm not going to sit here idle anymore. It's the same spirit. You know that you're sitting on gifts and talents that Jesus has given to you, and you could be using him for his name. So you're saying, Lord, no longer. No longer. Am I going to sit idle? I'm going to do what needs to be done because it needs to be done. <laughs> Heavenly Father, you see those of us who have stood to acknowledge that we can no longer take a back seat. We can no longer wait for someone else to tell us what to do. We can no longer sit on talents and gifts that God has given to us. No, that God has trusted to us. To use for the uplifting of humanity and for the honor of his name. So Lord, we are standing. Standing in your grace. Thankful, Lord, for how patient you've been with us all these years. All the time that we've wasted. Sitting on talents and gifts watching people go to Christless graves, and yet we have done nothing for your name. Lord, we have stood because we want to be always standing when it comes to your truth. We have stood because we're no longer going to be cowards and be controlled by fear. We're not going to be controlled by consequences, but we're going to do what is right because it's right. And we're going to leave the consequences with you. We pray that you'll teach us, young and old, to be Christians. Christians as they always once were and always ought to be. Lord, help us to think of our heritage, where we have come from. And we ask that you would guide us as we go forward throughout this Sabbath to sincerely embrace your spirit, to transform our lives into the Christians that we ought to be Christians that will transform this community for Christ. This is our prayer. And we offer this prayer from our hearts in Christ's name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.